0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would see the grace uh, that you offer us in your son Jesus Christ and that we would throw ourselves wholly upon him, trusting him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want you to be aware that uh, the hymn we just sang was not meant to be partisan. Uh, we did try to get the words War Eagle to fit somewhere in there, uh, but it just it, it didn't work. And so um, uh, there it is, uh, Alabama's favorite hymn, uh, talking about the crimson tide. And some of you, if you sang it, we haven't sang it here maybe ever, uh, but you may have grown up in a church that did, uh, but we didn't really give you a chance to enjoy it. It just kind of snuck up and surprised you, uh, I hope. But let's turn our attention uh, to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, whose crimson tide does cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And look at John chapter 8 about the woman caught in adultery. Uh, This passage of scripture gives us an undeniable look at the grace of Jesus Christ. It is all gospel to this woman. And it's a woman who of anybody uh, deserves it the least. But isn't that the nature of grace? Uh, here is a woman, while Jesus is there in the temple courts, uh, teaching is brought before the Lord Jesus. And we see here in the Greek, and it's even emphasized later on, that this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the act It's not an issue of her reputation or rumor, but she's been caught in bed, and she's been hauled before the Lord Jesus at best wearing a bedsheet, and she's brought before the Lord by the Pharisees and scribes who care nothing about this woman. Their intent is simply to undermine the ministry of the Lord Jesus by having some charge to bring before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, so that others might see him as a fraud. And so they put him to the test with this most likely naked woman there before him. The Pharisees and scribes say, The law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Politically, this is a no-win situation for Jesus because, indeed, the Old Testament does talk about what what punishment uh, is due to adulterers. But at the same time, while he's standing there in the courts is right next to them a Roman fortress with Roman soldiers looking down upon them. This is the very fortress to which Jesus would be brought to be scourged, to be whipped, to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. And so if he says yes let's stone her. Then he is responsible for an extrajudicial killing and he's going to be handed over to the Roman authorities, but his time had not yet come. And Jesus' response is bewildering. What does he say? Nothing. He simply stoops over and he begins to doodle on the ground. And I'm grateful that the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. For all we know, he put two dots, a little smiley face uh, there on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote, but I think that the passage lets us know that he did this so that the horror and shock of the words of the Pharisees and scribes would sink in. Let's kill her. You notice while he's doodling, it actually says, as they continue to ask him, they continue to needle him and push him, what are we going to do with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery? This open, defiant sinner. And Jesus finally stands up and says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then they go away one by one. It wasn't a collective agreement where they said, Oh, well, he called our bluff. But one by one they're convicted individually. And they go off. And John goes out of his way to say that the older ones go off first. And there is Jesus and the woman and the disciples looking on this scene. And Jesus asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This story doesn't make sense to me. I think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, who's got his religious act together. He's a faithful man. He's taking care of his parents. He has wealth. He has a position of authority and he wants to join and become one of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus looks upon him and loves him and says, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And we're told that the rich young man goes away sad for he had great wealth, great possessions. And I can see it in my mind's eye, the the crowd parting and the rich young man with his head slumped down, walking away. And my heart is saying, Jesus, call out and say, okay, we'll figure something out. Come back. But Jesus lets him go away. He absolutely crushes the rich young ruler who had his act together. And yet, here's a woman who is completely guilty of what she's accused of. And yet, he offers her grace and forgiveness. Why? Why forgive her and not the rich young ruler? Well, because she knew her nakedness. She knew her nakedness. Is there anything that the Lord Jesus Christ could have said or done in that moment to make her feel any worse than she did? In fact, I, I believe that there was a part of her that cried out for the crowd to throw the stones at her. Just kill me and get it over with. It cannot get any worse. She knew her sinful state. She knew that her only hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. He held her life in the balance, and with a word, she could die, and with a word, she could be saved. She didn't know how he would do it or what he might say, but Jesus was all she had. And she doesn't speak until Jesus speaks to her. With the accusations flying, she's without excuse. It's all true. I mean, Jesus knows she's been set up. If she's been caught in the act of adultery, who's missing here? The other guy. But regardless, there she is, standing guilty. There are those in the world who know their nakedness acutely, and they hide it. Some of us try to hide it from God. God. And yet we pray in our communion services, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And yet we spend so much of our lives trying to hide our true selves from the Lord. When that is an impossibility, we try to put on clothes of our own devising, our own righteousness. Lord, look upon my religiosity, but don't look upon my heart because I'm naked and I'm vulnerable get away from me for I am a sinful man I am a sinful woman I can't stand to be under the eye that sees everything and this fear is understandable because how many of us if our true selves were played out before us in the same way that this woman's life is what would the church say What would our neighbors say? We know full and well that if we were fully known by anybody else in the world that spiritual stones would eventually crush us and kill us. I mean, if y'all could see what was playing in my mind 24 hours a day, you'd never come to hear another sermon I preach. And our worst nightmare is being played out here in John chapter 8 with this woman. But there are also those who are completely oblivious to our nakedness. It's like our lives are living out the emperor has no clothes. We think that we actually do bring something to the table. It's not a charade. We really think, my life's great. I'm looking good. I'm a good person. So God's going to love me. But it's not as if some are clothed more than others say, well, she's naked in John chapter 8, but at least I've got pajamas on. And then maybe really holy people, they've got a three-piece suit on. No. What does Jesus say to us in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Before the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of us is naked. And without excuse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And until we get in touch with our nakedness, our own sinfulness, we will never understand the riches of Christ's grace. It's only in understanding our nakedness and our sinfulness that we can know the grace of Jesus Christ. God's office is at the end of our ropes and when we're brought to the end of ourselves and we realize we bring nothing to the table, not even a shred of clothing, it's all Jesus. And with a word, he can heal, save, and forgive Grace is God's unmerited favor, free and clear of everything. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's grace, and there's nothing that you can do to unearn it. It's a gift. A great little acrostic that I learned as a child for grace is God's redemption at Christ's expense. And yet, even those of us who are Christians who say, yes, I know Jesus loves me, and I know of his grace and his mercy, but how many of us are still trying to earn God's favor? I mean, we may think, well, Jesus has forgiven me on the cross, but it's up to me now to live in such a way as to please God so that he doesn't stop loving me. God's love for me is contingent upon my behavior, and not just that, if I'm really good, then he owes me. Rather than seeing everything that we have from God is a gift. If you wonder if you're trying to earn God's favor, what is something in your life that if it were to be taken away from you, it would be a complete and total nightmare? That gives you an idea of what you're putting your trust in in addition to Jesus. Because our works... Our merit, anything that we, we think that we bring to the table, deserves what? Death. For the wages of sin is death. For all of our hard work, guess what we've earned at the end of the day? Death and judgment. We're this woman. That's what we deserve. And yet the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, uh, a colleague of mine named Mark, who was a minister at uh, the last church that I served, had five children, and his wife homeschooled them all a saint, if ever there was one. And Mark was a wonderful, even-keeled guy, and the children were really lovely and wonderful. But one morning, Mark just had it. He blew up he, uh, when by the time he had left the house, he had upset his wife, kicked the family dog, and left three out of the five children in tears. And he just got into the car and escaped off to work. And he came into my office and told me what had happened and I prayed with him. And then I was working that night and 5.30 became 6 o'clock. And then a little after 6, I noticed that Mark's office light was still on. And I went to Mark's office and I said, you're going to have to go home at some point and face the music. And So he got in his car and drove home and pulled into the driveway and turned the car off and sat there and thought of what he might say to his family. I'm sorry. It's so unforgivable. I shouldn't have done something like that. Can you give me another chance? And as he was formulating his speech, he opened the front door, and there was his entire family, including the dog, standing there waiting for him. They didn't say anything. They just took him by the hand and led him to the living room and sat him down on the couch, took off his shoes and socks, and one by one, they began to wash his feet. My friend Mark was completely and totally undone. They had every right to say, you're the worst dad, you're the worst husband on the face of the earth, or at least today you are. You know, you shouldn't have kicked the dog because that's where you're staying tonight, so at least make up with the dog. No. What he deserved did not, they didn't punish it. They forgave him and showed him grace and love. And Mark was a changed man. Unmerited favor toward him when he knew that he was ready to receive the full blast of righteousness from his family. But God's grace is not just a demonstration of love. Jesus' death on the cross doesn't doesn't just show us what love is because our condition of nakedness is much more serious. Paul says in Romans 5, he asks the question, how many of us would die for a righteous man? I mean, think about that for a minute. How many of us would actually die for someone? If we would, it's probably someone who is near and dear to our hearts, someone that we would love, and most of us would be willing to die for someone else. But how many of you here If you had a young child, would give the child away to strangers. To strangers who would attack and kill the child. You'd rather die yourself, wouldn't you? So when God the Father, who is in total command with absolute love and wisdom, gives up his son to strangers to kill him, it's got to be serious, hasn't it? And our sin is serious. And that's what God's grace does through the cross. It reconciles us to our Heavenly Father so that you and I are made children of God and heirs of His grace. This grace has the power to transform your life, it's marvelous, it's healing. It's transforming. And so I pray this morning that we would understand ourselves as not rich and prosperous, having need of nothing, but that our eyes would be open, that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked before an almighty God. And yet we have a God who loves us so much that He's even against Himself by taking on the form of man and dying on a cross. And so this morning, Jesus stands before you. And we're without excuse. And yet he stands before us ready to save. Trust in him this morning. Put on his righteousness. And trust in his grace and grace alone. Amen.